Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me fantasy and science fiction author, R.R. Verdi. So, Ronnie, thank you for getting on with me. You have written in multiple subgenres under the fan fantasy and science fiction, urban fantasy. Um, let's see, I have, a, I have a list here. So your urban fantasy books are the, the Books of Winter and The Grave Report, which is an urban fantasy detective novel or series, um, Lit RPG, um, which is Monster Slayer Online. Mm -hmm. um, Shepherds of Light series, and then your latest release, which is Epic Fantasy, which was uh, picked up by Tor, right here, yep. the first binding. Um, <clears throat> that has just recently came out, and also something that just recently came out was an anthology you did um, in the Dresden universe called Heroic Heart. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. Wow, uh, don't know if I can introduce myself better than you just did. I usually leave a lot of that stuff out. It feels very uh, vainglorious to talk about all my books weirdly rather than the one that just came out. But yeah, I've been indie publishing, self-publishing since about 2013, which started with the Great Report series. I've written across most genres. And then my first traditional book is what just came out right now, The First Binding, which is picked up by Tor. Uh, the agent who represents me, who I signed with in 2019, is Joshua Bilmish, who represents Brandon Sanderson, uh, Charlene Harris, Simon R. Green, Jack Campbell. So I've been very lucky with that to get a very established agent who helped me uh, ensure I got to do this new series the way I wanted it with the, the word count, the storytelling techniques I wanted. And I'm just honestly a really big mythology nerd, which is why I gravitate towards fantasy and urban fantasy mostly, because those are two genres where I could do my love of comparative mythology, talk about shared cultures, storytelling, mythology, tropes, uh, beats, because that's what the first binding is. It's essentially not just a love letter to storytelling, but also a meta-analysis talking about a lot of the shared DNA of some of the most famous fantasy novels and storytelling with them, that they're reusing tropes and beats from mythology and epic poems and stories that people have forgotten about. And I'm trying to reintroduce that and show sort of like some of the bloodlines and linear stuff of where that's come through through mythology and people. And hopefully it also helps unite more of us to, to this day and age when social media and things kind of highlight our differences and set us very antagonistically against each other. I want to show that we have a history as a species of shared storytelling and taking from one another and borrowing and twisting and turning it into our own mythologies and more friendly towards us, but it's a shared thing we all do. Right. And I was talking with Chris Verrocchio um, just last week about si something similar where, you know, even Shakespeare, he pulled from Greek mythology and, you know, mm -hmm. Greek storytelling um, and, you know, if you, if you look down the line, everybody's kind of done this. We've all kind of stat, you know, we stand mm -hmm. on the shoulders of giants. Um, oh, absolutely. What are, what are some of the, the, you know, stories and, you know, even authors that have influenced you in your writing? Uh, largest influence would probably be besides Tolkien, Jim Butcher, uh, which it, there's also a very personal story with that, but I also grew up with his work. The Dresden Files came out when I believe I was still in elementary school. It was 2000 or 2001 when I would have been in fifth, sixth grade. So yeah, uh, and I got introduced to it very fortunately early on in my life. And it was the first time I saw so many mythologies as the series progressed from different cultures being introduced in a modern setting, which was a great form of escapism to me. And to see just this blend and this guy taking from Shakespeare, like Midsummer Night's Dream with the fairy courts and stuff, and then different kinds of vampires from different cultures and then re-evolving them and it was this, this beautiful love letter to mythology to me. And it really inspired me with what could I do with urban fantasy and fantasy. And then as I grew older and obviously have more uh, access to the internet, I was able to dig back into what did Tolkien really do for fantasy? And there's so much more that I think now he gets credit for that people didn't realize. It wasn't that he just birthed fantasy. It's that he created a new mythology for Europe that wasn't based so much on the Arthurian mythology that was dominating at the time. And he went back to Finnish and other Nordic mythologies and took inspirations from their folktales and structures and wrote toward their love of like epic poetry and that style. And he created a new mythology that felt British and European because it sort of was, but it wasn't their England. And he created something new, this new secondary world. And I wanted to do that with Tales of Tremaine, um, which feels South Asian. And it takes inspirations from very South Asian mythologies and pieces and snippets, but it reimagines them in new ways and it changes identities and it's a new evolution for this secondary world. And in that, I realized this could be a love letter to so many cultures around the world, like cultures we know, because the story of South Asia is really the story of the Silk Road, because it's at the heart of it. And it can, it's not inured from trade and different people and conversations. Everything passed through it. So it has, I mean, there there's texts out there that support that there are Greek philosophers who went to South Asia to study philosophy and ended up living there and never realized through their lineage, like the Greek empire had fallen apart. And there's like translations between Greek and uh, Sanskrit texts there 
they had trade obviously with China, um, people from Europe coming over, like the end of the Silk Road is in uh, old Venezia, which is Venice. This is something that spanned the world and there's a world of stories that pass through in there. So this was my way to go like, how do I tell a secondary fantasy that's South Asian, but also shows other cultures in the world and the love letter and their storytelling techniques, which are all secretly seeded in through here, including nods to their mythologies that are redone. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love this new trend that's kind of happening. You know, when I was growing up in the, the 80s and 90s, it was all token based, like everything was mm -hmm. kind of token based. Yeah. But in the last probably 12 years or so, it's kind of um, transition and we're getting, like you said, more cultures um, with fantasy themes. Um, one of the my favorite series, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, uh, Bradley, Bradley Beaulieu, I hope that's how you say his name. Um, he wrote um, the first book is The Twelve Kings of Shakurai, I think, and it's Egyptian based and oh, that's cool. And, and stuff. And it's a, just an amazing series. And when I was growing up, I would have never seen anything like that. You know, publishers wouldn't have published it because that's not what we're selling. Everybody like token and, and stuff like that. And seeing a transition, even um, interviewed JC Kong and his, his is, you know, Asian based and, and stuff. So we're seeing more cultures. Um, uh, let's see, even, even Davis Ashura is, is more Indian mythology based. And so we're, we're seeing these uh, conglomeration of, of cultures in fantasy and I'm, I'm loving this shift. Um, you, you know, you, like I said, you've written in, in multiple subgenres. What have you found joyful writing in, in each one? And, and what have you found challenging writing in, in the different ones? With urban fantasy, I love that it still feels like an open playground to me because while the genre has been done a lot, I think what, what appealed to me is when it first came out, okay, Dresden Files of the Wizard. And then Patricia Briggs comes out with the shapeshifter. And then someone does like a druid. And then someone does a, a warlock. And then uh, there's not just the mythological prototypes of what your character can be, but how they reimagine myths. And I was like, well, I have a different background culturally. What myths can I slowly imagine in? And then what about my influences growing up? So one of the influences in the Grave Report are two things, um, the Quantum Leap show, as well as uh, Yu Yu Hakusho, which was a Japanese anime and manga. And it translates uh, kind of like into the, the Poltergeist story or the Poltergeist report. And I was like, well, it would be really cool to take the idea of quantum leap, but what would it look like as an urban fantasy? It wouldn't have a scientific reasoning and have a spiritual one. So like I get to make my main character a soul. And it felt super freeing and going like, well, I love mythology. How can I reinterpret it and add my spin to it? The challenging part was learning to do it in a way that felt familiar, but also different. Because by the time I had broken into urban fantasy, and started publishing it, we'd already had some of the biggest names become established and do so much. Um, Sean McGuire, Richard Cadry, Patricia Briggs, Faith Hunter, Jim Butcher, obviously, Kelly Armstrong, Tanya Huff, uh, Laurel K. Hamilton, like you can name like that's like what, eight, ten right there right. that have already like just gone through the genre. And it's trying to find this overlap of how can I do something similar that readers will like, because obviously this is a commercial business and readers have to read it, but also the freedom to do what I wanted. Um, with sci-fi, I didn't feel that challenging only because I've only written a few pieces um, in terms of short stories and novelettes, as well as Star Shepherd, which is the largest of my works. That was directly a love letter that I wanted to do with certain languages that show or language styles that show up in sci-fi. And it's a love letter to Cowboy Bebop and Space Westerns like Firefly. So I, I wrote that entire thing to be very accessible plot wise, which wasn't super taxing, but it let me create this love of I wanted a certain pace space western with certain language and that was just absolute blast I had no hardship with it it was just pure fun um the book was actually published with a friend of mine who start, runs a small press I haven't even made much money off of it which I don't care I did it solely as a favor to her and to be able to write the story I wanted to write lit rpg's challenge was when I came into the genre it was still pretty young and there wasn't a lot of breadth for experimentation at the time in terms of what readers wanted uh, a lot of readers at the time, and this isn't a criticism, I understand it, and it's what makes genres popular and blow up so they can have a point of experimentation, but they, they wanted very more closer to noble, bright, escapist fantasy. And mine at the time was experimenting with some of my video game influences and loves like the From Software Dark Souls franchises. So I wrote a very darker storyline that deals with trauma and PTSD and violence. And the way it was done was kind of jarring to the audience what they wanted. They wanted more sort of online. And it was hard for me to want to write that. I actually still don't. Like when I go back to that universe and other stories, I want to explore other things that maybe emotionally won't resonate as much with what at the time that genre base wanted. I don't know if that's changed because uh, I'm not a, like, you know, in most of the fandom groups and stuff for that. I just wrote the genre because I, I grew up obviously stuck with stuff like Dot Hack Sign, uh, the earlier progenerators in terms of anime for what lit RPG would become. And they would tackle more emotionally dark stuff at times. 
that was the challenge with that being sort of out of touch with what the reader base wanted versus what I wanted. Um, I still had fun doing it. With my epic fantasy, Tales of Tremaine, the hardest part was studying how to make this sound beautiful, which sounds kind of silly now, but orally, because the entire premise of the story is that Ari is a traveling performing storyteller, which was a specific kind of job and art form back then, which means I'd have to write this, first of all, to sound beautiful by ear, because that is his trade and that has to come through, which means I have to change certain things like how certain verb tenses of words would work, certain smaller word orders, how it would hyphenate and make two words sound like one, the way uh, more familiar people might be with like how Eminem does syncopation and he makes certain words rhyme that shouldn't rhyme. But that's an art form and a storyteller would do that. And there's a lot of underpinning on what might be considered purple prose here. But I've always believed purple prose is only purple prose if it doesn't fit the character and the story you're telling. So for a storyteller, there's actually no other way to tell that because if he does, he wouldn't be worth listening to in this world that doesn't have access to video games and other kinds of media and entertainment, right? Like everyone can tell a story. The whole point is he tells it more pretty and more verbally pleasing or orally pleasing than anybody else. So I actually spent two years working with the voice coach and every line of the book was read aloud at some point and sounded back. And how does it sound with the cadence I want and the emphasis on the phonetics and does it sound beautiful as well as making the point I want to make. And that was learning a whole new skill set, which was both gratifying, but doing it for the first time made the first book take a lot longer than I would have liked. That's that's challenging and very ambitious to do something like that, um, especially with a novel of this length. Um, yeah. <laughs> that that no, I have not read this book yet. My son has started it and he loves it. Like he just oh, thinks it's amazing you. so far. And so you know, I'm excited to read it. Um, <clears throat> You know, that's that's kind of like a, a throwback to like the old um, times because back in the day, um, all they had was storytellers telling stories, you know, people like like Homer and even Shakespeare, like his his plays are meant to be read out loud. Like it's very challenging to, to read Shakespeare in your head. Yes. It's better to read it out loud. Um, is that now I'm going to ask a question. You might shoot me for this, but do you feel like this book sounds better um, as an audiobook form than written word? reading it i actually don't know because i have actually haven't heard the audiobook um all the way through i think it might be better read because i think everyone has their own ideal narrator in their head first of all and i certainly did when i was writing it so of course i'm going to be biased in saying that and the way i wrote it i know the certain cadence that every word pause hyphenated word and rhyme is supposed to have so to me obviously it's, it's way more perfect in my head than it'll ever be allowed the way any writer will probably say for an adaptation to another medium like movies. Of course, the writer's always like, and me, some readers like the book's always better, right? right. Um, which is not a criticism of the audio performance. It's just, I know I had a very certain vision in my head and there isn't a way to ever make that perfect in any other form. You just can't. The only form I'm ever going to have control over is writing. I think for a lot of people, it's going to be whatever that narrator happens to be in their head. Some are going to like it, some aren't, which, you know, that's, that's every art, right? Um, I did the best I absolutely could to make sure I think that it translates 100% the way I want on written page. You, you began in indie publishing. Um, what were some of your habits in the beginning? Because um, most indie publishers usually have a full-time job. You know, they're, they're writing on the side as a, as a hobby. And how have your habits and writing uh, processes changed to, to now? Uh, well, I'm still a pantser for what it's worth. That's, that's what my overall process for that is. I do take a lot more regimented notes now, but that's just because the breadth of body I'm doing with Tales of Tremaine is a certain kind of story that nods to how a lot of older stories were written where there's a lot of subcontext and rereading and allegory and assumptions you have to do. Like uh, the stories of King Arthur's Court with like the Green Knight, for example, which was recently readapted with Dev Patel as lead actor. It was a very not normal movie for a lot of people. There's a lot you have to assume and think and look into. And that's how a lot of old myths actually were. They didn't spell things out. But the more you reread, you start pulling things out and you're like, oh, this really means that. And there's secret clues hidden. It's something uh, Gene Wolfe did a lot of. And I have to take a lot more notes now for certain things I want to execute and foreshadow to make sure I do that. With urban fantasy, it wasn't like that. It's mostly I've read so much of it. I know the structure and I still do study structure. Even if I don't outline, I know it. But when I first started, it was way more just write and cut my teeth. And there wasn't so much worrying about that. Now I understand so much about structure. There's always that weird inner editor. Um, that does make me slow down when I write. But when I started, I definitely had a job. Um, at one point I was working too. Uh, when I first started writing, I was working as an emissions inspector uh, for, for the automotive field. And I was working at car dealerships and then hot rod shops. Uh, I have a, I'm a blue collar guy. I grew up around muscle cars and stuff. The neighborhood I actually live in used to be 
it's a pop-up neighborhood that was for like Korean war vets. So it's all the same old housing from like the sixties and they're all the same style. Now they're all being knocked down because of Amazon execs moving in and building massive mansions and stuff. But yeah. uh, I grew up around like guys who had like old cutlasses, old cutlass 442s, uh, barracudas and all that stuff. Um, and I, so I gravitated towards that as my blue collar job while writing, working in the automotive field. And then I ended up working, uh, oh God, what, what would you even call it? Like building custom gaming computers and stuff. I don't know what the name of the industry is, but I just that's what I would do. You'd work at a place that sells parts and build them for customers and things. And then I left that job when Grave Measures had just come out. Because I think this was right about when it got nominated for the Dragon Award. And when it did, the level of eyes on that indie series was so much that I was selling enough monthly to replace the income I was making there, uh, which still wasn't a lot, but it was enough for me to get by on. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, from this point on, I will do whatever it takes to continue being a full-time author and just give myself to this. Now I have more time. I still write about the same amount of hours I do. And I try to spend more doing the other parts now because there's so much business and industry stuff they don't tell you about as you grow up uh, in terms of emails, networking, business opportunities, learning other mediums. Uh, something I've been studying a lot recently is comics because there have been interested parties in me that. So I've been studying comic structure, even though I've read them all my life. I don't want to go in blind and just assumptive. Like I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure there's a nice way to say it. So I'm going to try to find it. a craft monkey. There we go. I'm very, I care so much about the craft to the point of perfectionism, which can be detrimental. But me going to the comics has made me go like, okay, now I'm going to read every comic structure book there is, like the DC Guides, How to Write Comics, or Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, and then go back and reread my famous and break down the structure. And I'm doing all this weird studying during nights after writing. So I'm working way more hours, but it's to afford me more opportunities in this. And that's kind of where I'm at right now, if that helps to clarify like what my, my current situation looks like working in the writing industry. No, and that's a lot you can do um, that people, like you said, uh, don't realize of all the, the, the ins and outs. Even, you know, becoming an indie publisher you or, or writing in the indie scene, like, you know, you're in charge of everything, you're editor, you know, cover artist and all that. And to have, you know, two of your books that were indie published get picked up or um, nominated for Dragon Award, that's that's amazing. How would you go about finding an editor and a cover artist to uh, work with uh, Facebook groups. Fortunately enough, I happen to be in writing Facebook groups at the time, which I'm no longer in because I just don't, I can't dedicate the, the unfortunate extra energy to that, that, that extra social media. Like I have my social media on Twitter, which is business oriented and some fun. And then I have my personal Facebook, which is personal oriented. But having an extra extension in like writing groups was like an extra, extra layer that I cut back. But early on, I, I found a reader who found the original cover, which I had helped designed, which sucked. Uh, it was very bad and I have no bones about that. Like it is what it is. And she loved the story. And she's like, hey, I'm an aspiring cover artist. Can I work with you on this? I really like it. And I think you could do better with a better cover. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. So she she ran me through it and we bought the images and the rights. And then she went to Photoshop and um, did, did her thing, the cover artist thing and turned it into this beautiful first cover I had. And still, I've been working with iterations of the same cover on the cover artist for that series. And then we bumped into a developmental editor who'd already done a lot of that work. And she was starting out freelance for the first time. She's like, I really like your story. I think it needs to be improved. Can we work on that? And I was like, yeah. And I'm just stuck with her too, because she's been honestly the greatest editor for that series. And she's been as hardcore dedicated to her editing skills across editing uh, developmentally line and copy and structurally for everything else she possibly can. And she runs a business now as that. Um, and I've kept with her for that series. I got very fortunate uh, and, I, and I, I know that. I, it, was, it shouldn't have worked out that way it did. And I've just kept loyal to those people because I've watched them improve the same way I'm trying to. And it's just, just been wonderfully beautiful. For a lot of other people, I'd still recommend that process though because a lot of writing groups now become more codified and they have industry tools and they focus on these things and they share resources like within them of documents of like your editors that ex-authors used and they're open to submissions. Uh, Twitter's really good about that. And I think that's a really good resource for anyone who watches this, who's into, into publishing, knowing that there's entire groups and collectives now for cover artists and editors and marketing, as well as a PA, it's like personal assistance to run all that for you. No, I like that. And you said you're, you're very blessed, but at the same time, you're in a position to where you could find people like that. And that's one thing that as authors, um, sometimes you think it's a lonely business, but um, if you realize the power of networking, you can find people who, who can do that stuff for oh, you. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not a solitary business in any regard. It comes off that way. I mean, like, yes, when we're writing, it's very solitary. And a lot of times, like any job, you're going to have emotional ups and downs and stress and drama. Those can isolate you and make it really hard because not everyone's going to get writing drama if they're not in the industry. So building industry friends for that is good. But every process, whether it's been traditional indie for me, has had a group 
of people who unfortunately get overlooked a lot of times or unseen, uh, even when we talk about them or recommend them, because it's not at the end of the day where the attention and fame goes, right? It's usually the author who gets all of the credit or the fail, depending on how the product goes. Um, I think traditional has some things to help with that. Like there are awards or categories for an award for at least like best editor. Uh, but even that usually doesn't get known, unfortunately, to a lot of the readers, except for people in the industry. Like right. other editors and publishers will see who won like this award for best editor and writers will know, but it, it kind of still leaves them unsung. But every form of publishing is a collaborative effort. No, that's exactly right. And being able to put yourself out there, even if you're, you struggle with that, that's, that's a key to do that, to create a group around you that can provide the best quality product. Um, in, including selling that product, whether that's marketing, somebody that's in your marketing or, you know, learning, finding somebody that learns algor algorithms for Amazon or Facebook or, wh or whatever process you're, you're doing. Now you decided to go traditionally published um, with the first binding. The, what was kind of the, the reasoning for that? Uh, a lot of surprises and more fortunate blessings, I suppose. So originally when I was writing this, it was completely for me. I was thinking I'd serialize it on Patreon. There, there was always a structure I just figured like, oh, because it's picaresque, you know, in a building's Roman, which is like you're following a young man's story as he grows up and learns about the world in the past story, at least. And a picaresque is it comes from the Spanish Picario, which is like a rogue story. You're following kind of like uh, a roguish character going through the world, making good and bad choices, trying to get by. And it's a very slice of life kind of story. I was like, because of that, it allows it to be serialized. I was like, who would want this? Like, I'll just write my South Asian fun adventure, epic fantasy story the way I want and get to make it about theater and my love of storytelling and oral beautiful sounding words and poetry and hearken to all the epics I want to talk about. And I started writing it and then people from Audible were like, this sounds really pretty. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Tantor was like, well, this would do probably really well in audio. And I'd already been at the Nebulas that year because I, I was up for best novelette uh, for the award with the co-writer of mine, Yuthan Jaya Wijarathne. We wrote a Mecca South Asian uh, fantasy story that was kind of like what we thought was wrong with Pacific Rim and not in terms of hating it but there were some things we felt weirded out about because it's a it's an Asian story with like one Asian character and we didn't feel a lot of mythology represented in that and then we had an argument of like well if aliens attacked earth they wouldn't attack America first because they don't understand American superpower like they don't know which country is a superpower they would only be able to really look at like maybe uh, population density and they go well, like China and India have the largest amount of concentrated population in one area that's where you'd attack first to do a first strike so in our story that's where they attacked first so India and China are the first ones to create a, mecha, a mechanized defense system and our story followed that and that brought us to the nebulas where I first bumped in with my agent Joshua Bilmish and he told me to submit the first binding uh, at the time it just had the Tales of Tremaine serial uh, series name and uh, he didn't get around to reading the sample at all for like the whole year and I'd just been bumping into other people who were interested and I was like well should I message Joshua back and find out what's going on and then I bumped into a tour editor and I didn't know he was an editor at first we were just talking with another friend of ours and we just hit it off uh, we talked about all our love of wheel of time and mythology comparative mythology especially like that shows up like how many beats and structures and tropes are like the history of fantasy and they show up everywhere and I was like yeah and I'm actually writing a love letter to this and I've got this cool project that tackles this and he's like oh really I was like yeah and he's like you should send me that I work at tour I'm an editor there and I was like yeah, okay, whatever. Like I, Because I, I didn't see much South Asian fiction coming out, right? And this isn't to like criticize Tor. That wasn't the point. It's just like, I don't see a lot of stories of people like me in them. So I was like, what are the odds, right? And I was like, cool. I sent it to them. And a month and a half later, I get an email back. He's like, hey, you didn't sell the audio rights to this to Audible like you were talking about, right? I was like, no, why? He's like, we need to have a call, but I'm busy till December. Hold on. Okay. Uh, first week of December comes by and does a call. And he's like, Tor wants to buy the series. And I was like, I'm sorry? He's like, yeah, Tor wants to buy the series. Uh, who's your agent? And I was like, well, I, I don't have one. He's like, you should go get one. Uh, like, I don't know who. He's like, you have, Tor wants to buy a series. Go pick which agent you want. And I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. Cause that's the thing. Um, I hung up and then I emailed Joshua and I was like, hey, uh, don't know if you remember me. Sent you this thing, never heard back. Uh, Tor wants to buy the series. And here's the editor. He said to go pick my agent. I need to know if you want to represent this or not. And Joshua got back and he's like, yeah, I, uh, I didn't really get to read this. I'm sorry. He went through it and he's like, I really like this. I'm going to go talk to Tor and let's get back to you. And this was right before Christmas holidays. So we couldn't do the deal then, but I got a letter of representation from Joshua, like December 19th or something like right before Christmas, signed it, uh, took, showed, showed him a photo that at least it signed like, Hey, and I faxed it back to him. And I'm like, I'm mailing the original copy back that he wanted. And then we announced that I was signed with him like in January and a few months later between the dickering of like agents and Tor with their lawyers and stuff. I got like the contract in the mail or email. It's like, you're good to go. And I was like, 
wow, uh, okay. So I signed it. And then a few months later, the UK was like, we also want to buy this. Um, the book wasn't even done. It was just like mostly just sample. And they're like, we really like it. And they bought it. And it, it's just been like a roller coaster ever since. And then I haven't had time off. because <laughs> so I was writing book, <laughs> finishing book one, editing it, writing book two. I just got the edits back for that. So book two is technically done. I just need to edit it. Um, I'm starting book three early next year after I turn in this, the, the final draft of this. And then I'm writing Graves four and short stories and uh, novellas and uh, other stuff. <laughs> oh, you're, you're a busy man. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I say it out loud. Yeah. Jeez. I, I feel even more blessed that you took, you know, this, this little block of time out for me. So thank you so much. Oh, for, no, th th for, thank you for having me. <laughs> but, but there again shows being in the, you know, being open and, and out there and meeting people and, you know, talking and, and making connections is, is key. You know, I, I'd like, like to think so, but I don't want to put it all on me. Cause I, I got lucky too. I, I think that's something people overlook, right? Um, it sucks, but luck is part of this. And, and it, it can lead, there's a lot of great authors there who won't get that shot. It has nothing to do with their quality or anything. It's just, they weren't there at the right place at the right time. And that's unfair. And it, But sometimes they, there's a lot of this stuff on social media where they might get lambasted some way where it's like, it's their fault or it's the industry's fault. And I'm like, no, it's just luck. And it sucks <laughs> that it, that's the thing, but it is. A lot of people and people have gotten luckier breaks than me, and there's, you just can't do anything about it. it you just you have to keep going, right? And that's that's yeah, like what you said. Like you just have to keep going. Like you know, if if the breaks never happen, the one thing that I liked in the last you know twelve years or so is indie publishing and being able to be able to. If you hadn't been able to pick up your book or if Cor hadn't picked up your book, you could have put that out there and and still had people find that and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's not like um it's, it's not like work lost or anything like that like you have mm -hmm. opportunity nowadays um to be able to still put out quality work and have people read that you know if there there is a debate whether like indie or traditional publishers is the way to go and i i'm i'm happy with anything like if you can get a book out there whether that's traditionally yeah. published or indie published like good on you like that's hard work like writing a book it's hard work people don't realize that it is and honestly one of the most viable methods i think for individual success is to be hybrid. Um, and there's there's extremes on both sides of both industries that won't like that answer, but I think it's true because at the end of the day, it's a business. And more importantly, it's your business. You right. have to be okay as the author and stable. Your financial stability and ability to write the books you want matters. It really does. So I'm not about like, you must be loyal 100% to either side. You need to be loyal to you as the artist because you deserve that. You're the one putting in the work. Um, be very open to opportunities that help enrich your life, whether it's through the creativity they bring you as well as the financial opportunity and stability to help you keep making more art. Uh, you can only ever do what's best for you in any situation and no one knows how it'll play out. You can just do the best with the information you have at that time. So to take the chance to learn to do all sides of the industry, you can. Um, it's partially why I've been doing so much comic stuff and looking into it because not only do I have a personal love for it, but it opens new doors. It lets me continue being creative. Um, there's certain stories I'll never be able to adapt to novel format, maybe because they just won't work that way or they're best suited actually in a visual medium, but it lets me keep telling stories. No, and that's that's very good advice to to be a hybrid and be open for different mediums of uh, creativity, whether that's comics or short stories or you know full length novels, whether that's indie published or or traditionally published, or you know even if you want to be a screenwriter or whatever. Like, um, absolutely, there are ways for you to make a living um, that that you can keep your options open. So, I mean, when you're uh, indie published, you know, marketing is like a huge thing. How did you stay up and, and be able to sell your books to make a living? I'm sure the I, Dragon Awards helped a lot, but yes, it did. And mostly it was because of the people who covered it. Uh, when the because, like, the, you know, with major awards, there's major magazines that cover them. So I think the one that did it for me that I noticed the biggest uptick was after like The Verge, which has like how many millions of readers and they cover the Dragon Awards. And of course, there's like a list of 12 names only. And I happened to be in, I was very fortunate to be in the novel category for one of the most popular novel categories. And it was paranormal slash fantasy. And the names in it were like N.K. Jemisin and Jim Butcher. So having, first of all, those two names there draws a lot of fandom fan base there. And my name's right there. And I'm writing the same genre as Jim Butcher, like one of my heroes. And it was almost instantaneous after that article came out. I don't know why or what, but I'm guessing there was enough people that saw it who happened to be fans. That percentage of them were like, yeah, we'll check out this guy's books. Because I, at that time didn't have the financial money between just staying alive and living and working uh, to go. I have so much extra marketing money to invest in. I was just working on, I'm going to write the next best book I can and save everything to produce the book, paying editors and cover artists. 
And that's when like it jumped up to making like a solid four figures a month off those first two books without me doing anything. And again, that was luck. Um, but that doesn't last forever. So after that period, I had to start learning about, okay, here are Amazon ads. And then, well, Amazon ads aren't just magic. You have to learn certain targeting and who to target and what authors you should be similar to, but not, you know, compete against because other people have more money than you. And then there's a bidding system with Amazon ads for keyword and someone cannot spend you. You need to be economically like how much attention can you get per click per the financial investment you're putting into that paying for that click. And it was a lot of math. And I realized for me, the best way for marketing me that works that, where I can do it consistently. It's like gym results. In my opinion, consistency matters more than small, like just up and down progress. Cause you can always taper off or fall out of the gym. Like a lot of people do after new years, right. but the consistency gets you the rewards. And I happen to be very good with social media, just interaction. I like people. I'm an extrovert. And me just talking and talking about my books and why I do stuff and maybe occasionally doing YouTube and stuff gets more readers into me than me taking ads, but ads are still important. It's just, everyone's different and has that, that level of expertise where they get more stuff from. Like we've seen the blown up of TikTok authors. They're not marketing in the same traditional ad space way, but they're socially popular. And that leads to them being able to talk about their books in certain ways. And then those books resonate and they have a percentage of those social following who will go through and buy the books. And then of course that leads back to the, the biggest marketing, which is word of mouth. Everything leads back to that. That's the point of ads. You're getting enough people interested who will hopefully keep talking about your book. And no, this exactly. is honestly how I do my marketing. I actually happen to like interviews and talking with people because um, like an extrovert. Right. And, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, one of the things that lots and lots and lots of authors that I've interviewed said is, working on the next book is the best marketing tool for your previous work. Um, that, that seems to be key. Like I've had multiple authors say that the first book, don't worry about making a profit on it. Worry about getting it out there and then working on your second book. Even your second book might not make a profit on it, but get it out there and work on your third book. Eventually, like you said, like more and more eyes that get on it will be able to pick up that one, you're consistent, like you said, and, and two, that you can put out quality work, then that's when the sales come. It might, not, it might come a year from your um, first sell, but, or when your first book comes out, but as long as you're consistent and put it out there and, you know, uh, be, if you're an introvert, become an expert in either marketing or learn to be able to put stuff out there on social media so that you can learn to interact with people in a positive way so people can draw, draw books. All that stuff is useful and that's, that's great advice that you said. Um, what have you found to be the, the most, um, I'd say, challenging um, go moving into that traditional public space? Mm. I, I think dealing with certain expectations I had of what I would get and what I would not get. And even with that, you know, expectations are never lived up to no matter what side, whether you think you're not going to get something where you will. Uh, that was challenging because there's a lot more transparency in D. Uh, I say that because, well, at every point you're involved with it, whether it's the editing process, who you hire, cover art, design, say, um, marketing, how you're going to market yourself and brand yourself and how you're going to write your blurbs or describe your book to people, uh, how it's going to be pitched and compared to things. And then also um, you have lifetime data as, as, as much lifetime as it can be, because even Amazon, you know, it updates hourly or bi hourly, depending on what server node and cluster you're in uh, when you get your data, but you have a lot of transparency in your data. Traditional, there's not a lot of that. And there's also different limitations, right? Like technically as an indie, if I want, I can write a 1 million word standalone book. You can argue about the commercial viability of it, the structure of it, whatever, but I'm allowed to do it. And I might not be able to get it printed, but most indies, no matter how big they are, rarely ever sell tons of print copies. It is a very yeah. ebook audio market. And there, there's no limitation. Traditionally, you do have those limitations, uh, especially right now with a paper trade war crisis going on. Cause like 80% of our paper, I believe comes from China. And COVID obviously shut things down. Uh, I don't know what the paper situation is, but I know publishing has been paying a lot for printing right now. It's just been an issue. Print timelines, print copy production, sizes of books, quality of paper. And I'm happy to be writing very big books. Not a lot of people are even getting the leeway to write a book the size I am. But even then, like I have a limit where maybe 10 years ago, you could get away publishing a 520,000 word book for like one or two authors. That's no longer like viable traditionally, uh, unless you're Brandon. And of course it's justifiable because like the dude deserves it. He's, he's killing it with sales. Like no one's going to tell him not to. He, he's making everybody money that is helping the industry. Like people need his money, which is fantastic. Like he's, mm -hmm. and authors like that success in sales allow publishers to buy smaller new authors. That might be a risk because I remember seeing this publishing breakdown once um, when it's a pie chart. 
And it was I don't want to say it was eighty percent. I might just be remembering that, but it was a large percentage of new authors are actually flops for their their publisher. They're losing money on them, but they're hoping to help build and invest in them, um, and making them a name over time. And it's a very small percentage, just like the one percent elites who make so much money in excess that that money is what's funding all those risks. That the publishers can go like, well, because we're making so much money off him, we can give this person a five thousand, twenty thousand, and a few people a fifty thousand dollar advance per book um, to get them out there and see what happens. Uh, at the same time, it is kind of weirdly like throwing darts at a dart before blindfolded, because if the industry knew exactly what would be a bestseller, there'd never be a flop, right? Right. But uh, it doesn't. But that's been the challenge for me is reconciling all that and understanding that. I might want to write a 450,000 word book because of the style of this particular story for this series. But they might say, well, it has to be 400,000. We don't care how big the book is. We have a limit and we must meet that regardless of the quality. That can be hard for an author to hear maybe if that's what it comes down to because then it's not even your story's fault. It's that it's just can't print it. Don't care how good it is. It could be perfect. It could be editorially perfect, but they're like money. Yeah, And it makes sense. But indie, you could just go, well, I need to write this for me and I'm going to do it that way. Exactly. Now let's talk about the, the Amazon, you know, live results that you can do a few weeks ago, maybe about 10 days ago, your book hit less than a hundred on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, it was in the top 100 books in Amazon, like on all, all books that day where you just kind of like watching it, like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Like, how do you handle something like that? I was trying not to, because, uh, (laughs) I, so I hadn't gotten my edits back from book two yet. I knew they were coming and I was actually working on some comic stuff, studying. I was working on the short story for Tales of Tremaine, which is going into an animal rescue anthology pretty soon. Uh, and I'm almost done with that short story. And I was like, I should just keep busy with work. But then later on by the day when it broke top 100, somebody tagged me on my personal Facebook, like, hey, dude, your book just broke top 100. And then I went to check, like, wait, what? And then it was like, oh, yeah, it's also number one in epic fantasy right now, in epic adventure fantasy. And I was like, okay I'm, i was like okay that's cool i'll take a screenshot post on twitter i'm very happy i'm now i know if i look at this too much i will get stuck in that trap and it's like i need to finish because also to, that sunday when it happened tonight that night was the next episode of house of the dragon and obviously i'm a huge you know fan of george r, r. martin's work and it's like i want to be able to watch that and not still be working and then the night got closer and closer and on and they're like dude you're still moving up in the top 100 like you're number 83 now you're number 78 you're number 73 and i was like what and i went there and someone's up your screenshot of your book just overtook fire and blood. And I'm like, the episode comes out in an hour. And I was like, I, I can't look at this because this is going to mess me up. But like, I, I have to screenshot and save that because holy crap, I can't believe that just happened. And I'm so grateful to everybody like you and everybody who's been supporting because a lot of readers who like the book retweeted and shared about the sale on Twitter. Um, a lot of big reviewers were supportive and shared about it. I was very fortunate to have authors share and support that made that happen. And I know it made my editor super happy. Um, because every editor has like a love story with why they pick up the books they do. And this has obviously been really great and helpful for him because this is a book he took a risk on. He invested in, he pitched it to tour. And so far it's just been doing fantastic. Like it's launch week numbers were really good and it's been performing really steadily, uh, which I know is a plus because even if a book launches really high, sometimes it can dip, but publishing really likes stability. And it seems like that's where this book is going, where it's just this really solid rock of a book that just keeps selling steadily and well. Like the little engine that could, I suppose. And every month there's something really cool, weird happening about the book that's just exciting. And it's it's also making him happy. And I'm like, this it just it's just a great experience to see that. Um, I don't want to internalize it too much because I get it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen Jamie Foxx did this wonderful interview where he's talking about when he won, I don't know if it was a Grammy or an Oscar, and he just told his agent, like, keep that away from me. Like you keep it. I don't want to let it go to my head. I don't want to let any small victory go to my head. I just want to keep focusing on the work. And I don't know if it comes out of a place for fear and stuff with him, but I know with me, I've always been afraid of that because I've seen in other industries where somebody gets a really big head and that's terrifying to me because I come from the craft monkey side. I just want to keep getting better and I don't want to lose that. And, and, and it's a fear thing. I just don't. I, I would rather pursue, how do I just make the next thing better and have fun and cool and explore new techniques and be my little, the little nerd I am. And when things like that happen, it's cool. I want to celebrate slightly and then I want to forget about it. Because <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, like I said, it's just probably a fear. Maybe I'm over dramatizing it, but I, I'd rather have other people celebrate it and then be happy, like my editor getting credit and him having that win, than me. I just want to like go make the next thing and then the next one and get paid and keep creating the art I want to create. Right, and I, I can see that too because sometimes uh, I'm I can be very prideful, and if I saw my book coming out, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm hot stuff now. When in reality, like you're not like or at least I'm not. You, you're awesome. I'm not. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. I, I, I was very lucky to get disabused of that early on. Like 
I had a pretty rough childhood. So first of all, like I come from the opposite end of self-esteem. I never had any growing up and I had to build to a healthy amount with therapy. And then I had some dealings early on with Hollywood. Um, with I was talking to a particular company, I, I'm not going to name, but they were interested in adapting the grave report into an anime. And they were a very successful company, their Western company. And somebody once told me that the publishing industry is all no until somebody finally says yes and you break in. Hollywood's the opposite. It's always yes. Like they'll yes everything up until that last moment and they go no. And that's what my interaction was. So I was like, oh, wow, this that really like knocked me down off the excitement because this was during the Nebulas. So I'd already been nominated for two Dragon Awards. I'd hit in some bestseller list before. I was up for the Nebula at this time. And this company was like, oh, yeah, the Grave Report sounds awesome. We want to animate it. We're going to do this anime. And I'll go to this major production company that we work with that we've done a very successful anime with um, that was hitting up all the charts. And I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Thank you, guys. And then it kept going, like, even the emails, like, yeah, we're excited. Months later, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. And then out of the blue, it was like, yeah, no, we're not doing this. And I was like, oh, um, maybe something else, guys? Can we work? They're like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll do something else with you. And then it was crickets. And I was like, I'm not going to let the expanded parts of this industry, like, get to me anymore like that with, with hype and stuff because – how do I phrase this like politely, man? Because I, I do mean it in that. Well, I'm not. I don't mean it in a negative way. It's just there's so much you can't control, right? This is the entertainment industry too. At the end of the day, even being a writer, it's it's affiliated nowadays with Hollywood. There's so much overlap with books that get popular instantly getting optioned for a movie. Doesn't mean you'll get one, but there's such a tie-in, and it just adds more, you know, spokes and wheels and the cogs and all that shit turning or crap turning. Sorry, um, and it makes it hard. Cause there's more pieces that come in, which means more distance, more places you're removed from, which means less control. And I want to just keep focused on things I can control with. Cause I also think that's mentally healthy. And it goes back to the consistency thing. The more I focus on just my craft and producing the novels, that's all I can do. Um, especially with traditional link. Cause I don't have a lot of impact on the marketing there. I don't get the transparency data. I can't tell them like, Hey, here are uh, indie techniques that we use because they have their own way of doing things and that works for them. And that's the way they're going to do it. So I guess staying in my lane has been something to really focus on. And, and that also includes with the awards, because at the end of the day, they have new awards every year and you're not going to control if you're going to be on the list or not and how to react to them. The only thing right. you control is writing the best book I can. Mm-hmm. No, that's great advice and something to be aware of, I guess, for people who are starting out in this um, industry and even those people that have been in the industry for a long time. Like I didn't know about Hollywood being like, yes, yes, yes. And then pull the rug out from underneath. Yeah. And like, um, I think good advice, and this is something that I've kind of learned, is separating yourself from you versus your art. Like, you can still have good self-esteem and and read a negative review or whatever. Like, you know, take it as a learning experience, or like have send it off to you know your work to an editor and have them come back and be like, no, like that's okay. There's there's yeah. lots of other editors or lots a lot of other uh, you know publishing houses that that might say yes. So like don't take offense to it personally. Like, you know, you created something, send that out um, and don't have your self-esteem based on that. And that's really hard to do. Absolutely. How do you, how do you separate oh. that? Oh, one of the best things I learned early on is no, isn't actually no to you. What it is, is it's no, not for me. So when you get a no from an editor, they're not saying, no, you suck or no, this is bad. They're saying, no, it's just not for me, which is no different than if you went out and you looked at a shirt and your best friend went like, this is a really cool shirt. You wouldn't go like, that shirt sucks. Screw you. Like well, your opinion's bad. You would go like, you know, that shirt's not for me. That's it. And that's all that exchange really is. And it could be for even more reasons than you realize. Like, it, and this happens, but um, what's a really popular trend right now? Like fairy tale and retellings, right? And a publisher might already have one and they might have an author branded really big one. And you might send one in and it could be fantastic, but that uh, the editor might just say no, and they might not clarify. And it, it's going to be no, not for me, but there's also a because. And it could be because we already have a number one bestselling author who we're allocating a lot of resources to who's writing the thing you're writing. Now, you may have written a different story than them, but they might be the king or queen of, you know, we are retelling this kind of mythology and this is our thing. And they've blown up all over the charts. So they have that big hitter. They just don't have space for you at their publishing house, uh, which sucks. It is something that happened to actually a lot of minorities. Uh, I wouldn't say now, but like, maybe not even five years ago, but definitely earlier on where there was a thing where people tweet about like this publishing house already had their minority of this background writing a certain kind of story. And it's like, well, do you guys only have room for one? Really? Right. But, but editors would reject off of that. And it's like, well, we've already got someone writing these stories from this background. And it's like, oh, uh, but again, that's not indicative of you then. It's just, it's not on you. And that's on its way to healthy. And then also at the end of the day, reviews are reviews. That, first of all, they're not indicative of sales. Like, I'm sorry, they're not. 
reviews do not affect sales. If you don't believe me, look at anything with movies and you know uh, the critics out there for how movie reception goes to audience and doesn't indicate how someone might respond to your work personally because there's 8 billion people in the world, which means 8 billion opinions. They're all going to be different and you can absolutely find a fan base out of 8 billion people. It's actually more arrogant to assume you wouldn't. Like, I don't think anybody's ever written anything so special, so unique that only the creator can like it. Right. Like 8 billion is a lot of people. 1 million out of that is actually peanuts. You can find a million people. Like oh, the yeah. marketing to find them? Sure, that's hard. But there are a million opinions like yours out there, which is a good thing. You have fans. But same with the nose. If you can have a million people like your work, you have a million people who hate it, a million more people who will be ambivalent and be halfway in the middle. And you have a million people who will hate it because they don't even know what they're reviewing. Because I once had a two-star review on The Grave Report, the first book, because a woman thought she was reviewing a pair of shoes she bought from Amazon. And she wrote up half a page hating how the shoes came in, the quality and everything. And I'm like, you realize you just posted this on an urban fantasy novel, which I don't think she even bought because it wasn't a verified review. She must have bought the shoes, but she hated those shoes and took it out on my book. And this was at a time when the book was very still young. So that was that review percentage wise definitely hurt my overall rating. And this is when I was more susceptible to it. And I was like, yo, Amazon, can you remove this? Cause this is not related. And Amazon was like, we didn't find anything violating our review system. I was like, she's talking about <laughs> shoes, man. And they're like, nope. And I just had to learn to live with it. Eventually it did get taken down. I don't know why it took three years or something. And someone was like, Hey, remember that shoe review that really ticked you off? I was like, yeah, what about it? Like it's gone. I was like, at this point, I don't care. I'm a cool, <laughs> like three years too late, but that was a good eye opener that more and more often than not, when people hate something, it's them. And on top of that, looking at social media, and I, I'm not trying to be hypercritical of it because I actually like social media and what it can offer. But at the same time, people talk a lot more about what they hate than what they love. Anywhere you look, you don't really people going like, oh my God, I, I tried this new food today. And it's the greatest thing ever. Someone will more go like, I got this thing from this food place and it sucked. The presentation was bad. They messed up my order. Like it's easier to complain now and faster than ever. So people will do that, especially with books. This book sucks. Here's why. And, and I'll page about it rather than I loved it. A lot of that love is where the word of mouth goes back to. People talk about it in their private lives. You mm-hmm. and I might geek about it in a private interview. I might call my best friend like, dude, I've been reading this new book. I know you've been in reading some. People really love it. And my best friend and I do do have those conversations. We never published those until I became traditional published. I rarely even talked on social media about books I love, except for my most favorite series, which those authors are already so established, like the love is great for them, but they don't need it. Uh, a smaller author would benefit. Now I'm being asked for blurbs and I see the influence I can have as I'm slowly starting to get a, a different kind of fandom from tra- traditional, where if I tweet about a book that I really loved and I explain why, there might be a reviewer who follows me now who goes like, oh, that sounds like what I'm looking for. I'll go read it. And I've been learning how I guess not just to be grateful for what people like you do in reviewing and interviewing authors and helping spread that word but the larger reviewer community because I was actually ignored by a lot of that as an indie which which happens unfortunately uh, because we don't have the same spotlight and power that traditional does but now seeing that I'm like wow there's a lot more good out there and there's a quieter word of mouth system that can combat a lot of the hate and that's what you should focus on because at the end of the day you're not going to sell infinite copies to haters um people are going to hate it for all different reasons and that's fine they're not going to buy book two or book three. So don't worry about them, right? They'll try the first one and it's a fair reaction. It's like someone tries sushi, they don't like it. Okay, they're not going to go back for it. You love it, you'll go back for it. Focus on those people because then they'll buy book two and three and four. And then you try something new, they might like it and stick with it or they might not. Because um, you look at Stephen King's fans, a fantastic author. Not every Stephen King fan likes every Stephen King book, but it right. doesn't matter because he gets to keep creating such a breath that the next thing might be perfect for that fan who didn't like this book in this, and not just the series, but his overall breath. And then next book after that they won't like them anymore again and then the next one and that's just normal it is and for those people that are discouraged if you're listening you're discouraged about your book not being well received whether that's from your page readers or even if it's already out there here's a here's a test and i've never said this before but go find your favorite movie look on rotten tomatoes and read the reviews and you will find people who love it and you'll find people who hate it same thing with books find your favorite author find their favorite your favorite book of theirs and you'll find people that don't like it. And yeah. you, you'll realize that it's just like, like you said, it's, it's human nature to, you know, talk crap on, on things instead of praising it. You know, yeah. it's, it's easier to destroy than to build. And if we can get away from that and like oh, you, said, you, you talk to your friend about your books, if, if you, you know, opened up like a, a camera and you recorded that and you guys just geeked out together, you know, not that, to say to do that, but like right. that would help that, you know, whoever you're talking about immensely. And, and it, it, 
they might find or they might find that oh yeah there's people actually talking about my work instead of just the crap i see online exactly and that's why i'm so grateful people like you because it's in, in effect what you guys do you give us a platform to do that but then reviewing other books and authors who don't have the spotlight because like you said i think you reviewed jim butcher I don't have a career at that level, but I'm getting the same kind of kindness and treatment from you now. That still matters, whether it's emotionally to me, but also my profile and association. And there's some breadth of body that does that from you interviewing people to reviewers like Patrick, who has a great profile, who also reviews smaller, like indie authors who have never gotten a chance to go traditional or hybrid. And his reviews do bring in massive amount of attention to people who might not have gotten that love. Uh, so there is a lot of good love out there. I just think the unmass of social media, not counting reviewers, just everyday people you we get to see the hate a lot more unfortunately is all but know that there's systems to help perpetuate that love and create it and share it it's just i guess maybe there's more work to be done on that front or something i don't know right and i I like something you said earlier like there's eight billion people in this world and it's more arrogant to think that you're not going to be successful than to be successful like if you do like a calculation like i don't know what eight million divided by eight uh, one million versus uh excuse me 1 million divided by 8 billion, that's like 0.00 something yeah, percent. Yeah, it's such a small percent. And even that, there's a theory of uh, a thousand true fans where depending on what you're selling, uh, I'm trying to think of the math because the first binding is like almost $30 because how big it is. But if you can get a thousand real fans, which that's actually very possible, right. if you can get them to spend $100 on you, that's $100,000 in a year. Right. So imagine if you've got a bunch of indie books out there that equal that or a couple of hardcovers because you've had them either backlisted up by now or they come out at the same time. And of course you're not getting all of that, but somewhere a hundred thousand dollars has been being generated, which is success by some metric to even a publisher, even that you've deemed that you're paid a smaller percentage of course, and you're going to get a small cut of that, but they go by off of what they make too, not just what your cut is supposed to be. That's paying them back the profits to keep funding. You're clearly making money. You are an investment and you should see yourself as one too, in a good way that you are something to be banked on. And you can find a thousand true fans to do that. And now there's options where people are doing uh, direct, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I guess like direct pay. You can sell books, not even just like on Amazon, but your website. And there's ways to do that with like, uh, I don't know what this called, something, something tree. And it was like, you set up your own shop front in your store. And there you keep hundred percent of the proceeds. And if you can get a thousand fans out of a couple thousand to even support you directly there, you're making you know way more money than even just self-publishing right. on, on a platform or aggregate, which takes a percentage, which I'm not saying not to do because there's obviously built-in readerships there. But we're seeing a larger breadth of how you can monetize publishing wider than even before. Uh, Spotify just got into audiobooks and they're going to be doing streaming revenue similar to like an audio version of KU. Uh, people, and I'm not weighing in on the political aspect of this because I know there's a divide, but I recently just saw an author do NFTs for a short story but these were like digitally signed with an alternate cover and like a special extra message and stuff. And there's only like a limited amount of that version. I think he did like 2000 something, 2700 ish, something at $20 a pop. That's like $51,000 that he raked because all of them sold out. And that may not be every year, but that was like 50 grand before taxes that he just made. Right. And that was the people who necessarily weren't even like a thousand true fans. There was a lot of fans. And then there were people who just, are NFT fans and people who are into crypto and they were like, oh, well, this is collectible and I want to, because there's that too. There's always that when you do something, there's that outlier group of, well, I want to check this out or that's not for me, but the crypto part is and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I'm not endorsing or criticizing this, but just every day there's weird new options to to just spread out how you publish and pull in money and what what you can do with it. Uh, Narrating your own audiobook. I know people making more money writing a serialized short story universe where they're writing it almost like a TV show where it's not even novella or novels. It's, it's like 8,000 words, episode one, 8,000. And they've got like 200 episodes all in Kindle Unlimited. And they're not making tons per thing, but they have so many people going through enough of that body of work that the overall money they bring in is a living. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have been feasible in print, but it is this way. Right. And being open and creative to look for other options. Like, when you think of an author, you think, okay, I'm writing a book, my book's on the bookshelf. And mm-hmm. there's so many other ways to make money at this thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that thousand fan thing comes from um, Tim Ferriss. Um, I think in Tools and Titans, I have his book right over here. That's what it's from. Um, but, and, and he has great advice too on, on different things, doing, um, you know, getting uh, like a, a virtual assistant and different things mm-hmm. that you can do as an independent creator of things, not necessarily. Oh, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily talk about like authorship, but like he's very um, open with this day and age of digital stuff, how you can make a living of, of doing things. 
one thing that I would advise everyone looking into this now is start studying other industries because writing has been 15 years behind the music industry. And that's really who we're following because they were the first to do digital with MP3s back in 2000. And then the MP3 devices for it, like the iPod and the Zune, which is like our version of the Kindle. Uh, and then from there, you started having self-publishing artists. And then you had people like on SoundCloud with streaming, which is like KU. And then you had SoundCloud rappers exploding in indie label houses and how streaming and audio rights work now for Microsoft and then transitioning to other kinds of music uh, production and distribution models. Writing has been following that 15 years behind, almost like to the year. But the music industry has been growing more creative with how they publish music now and how they share it. And you start realizing that as you're not really just an author anymore, you're an IP creator. Because just because you wrote a book, you wrote a story in a world in the universe that can be turned into a comic book, that can be turned into a tabletop RPG, uh, a graphic novel, a video game, an indie game, because those exist now. Um, look at the Witcher franchise. The games uh, deviated from some of the core short story novel material. And then they something that became really popular out of that was the Gwent card game inside the game that was just world building has a massive fan base for just that. And they can monetize Gwent now and do stuff of that, which you never would have thought possible. But that that happens, right? Like we've got, oh God, for Epic Fantasy, like Dresden Files and Stormlight, for example, have jewelry uh, that's done by a wonderful company called Vidali Jewelry that shows up at comic conventions. And they get a cut of that, right? Like there's a licensing fee and you have jewelry based off your books and t-shirts and apparel. Um, I think Stormlight had a video game inspired by, I don't know how much Brandon got paid for that, but there was a, a game that came out a year or two ago uh, and you can look it up. I, oh man, it was, and it has like power armor, like fantasy power armor, like the way Stormlight does. It's just not called that because it's not actually right. directly Way of Kings, but it is inspired by that. And I don't know if he was consulted or paid a fee, but his universe spawned something. Like someone was inspired by that. And there's no saying you, he can't directly go do that. I mean, we see him doing his Kickstarters, which is wonderful there's way too many things you can do this this day and age like with and then now people have access to 3d printing i know someone who just for fun is 3d printing his own characters out but i'm like that's not that far step from you running your own tabletop rpg modules and right. then that's not that far from you writing a rule book which gets published which means people can start buying and playing and making a tabletop and it doesn't mean it's always going to work out but now the options are there exactly now i don't know if you know who chris fox is or not um but he that's what he did like he um, released uh, Shattered Gods uh, last August, I think. Not this, not this last one, but like last year. But like he created an RPG um, oh, as a cool. tie-in okay. with it, and so like, you know, that's something that he's done. Um, and I, I know Brandon uh, Sanderson early on. Um, I think when the launchers came out, but like Badali came to him, and he was selling jewelry like almost at the very beginning. You know, he mm -hmm. started that relationship, and he and he was one of the early adopters. Like he started selling T-shirts and different things, like his character like you said like you're not creating a story you're creating an ip and how mm -hmm. can you monetize all of that mm -hmm. is, is, absolutely right you don't need to be explosively successful in any one thing if you have multiple income streams from even one ip that can add up to living right there which makes it more viable for you to continue doing art no exactly now um so you're, you're a big fan of jim butcher and you've written in his universe um how how did that relationship start and like what you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of many authors. I, I can imagine what kind of feeling that would be if, if somebody approached me and be like, hey, do you want to write in, in this anthology? Like, how, how did that relationship start? And like, wow. Um, so technically my story with him begins when Ghost Story came out, which I think was 2011. This was summer and he was doing a book tour for it. And I was in a really low, bad place in my life. I deal with uh, depression, with suicidal ideation. And I was close to taking my life that night, but I saw he was coming and I was like, well, maybe the one good thing I'll get to do in my life before I do this is uh, talk to him and meet my hero and get a book signed. And I went and at first I almost walked away from the signing because when I went there, the signing was already out of the, the bookstore. Like we're talking, it's out and out of the mall. Like it was out onto the street. And I was like, I'm not getting in. I walked away for half an hour. I went to go talk and my sisters were with me like, you should just go. It's like, all right, I'm probably not going to get in. They'll cap it for sure. And I went in, I waited in line and I, I got in. Went through the whole thing of the two hours of him talking, answering Q&As, reading snippets of Ghost Story, and we all go up to do our signings. And I was talking, he was doing the wonderful author thing that everyone does, like, hey, how are you doing? How are you? Making nice talk. And I don't know why, but I kind of broke down and told him where I was at, really. And he stops, and he gives me this really motivational speech about how nobody can write my story but me, um, that I choose how it ends and when it ends, and if I choose to end it, then I've already set that course. And I'll never know what else I could have done. 
But if I choose to go on, who knows? One day I might be where he's at, signing books in the Barnes and Noble. I might be in an anthology with him. I might be up for an award with him. I might be on a bestseller chart next to him. I might be paneling with him. And I don't know why, but I took that to heart. So I didn't go through with what I was going to do that night. And this was before I even published Great Beginnings. And I went on and I kept publishing. Okay. 2016, before Grave Measures came out, but it was done. It was in the editing process, ready to be released. I was at a seminar where I bumped into him and I didn't expect him to remember who I was. And we talked and we bumped into each other. And I was walking out of copy with, with copies of Grave Beginnings just to give out to other authors and people at the seminar. Just like, so I was like, this is who I am. This is like my business card. And someone was like, hey, you're a Jim Butcher fan, right? And I was like, yeah, what about it? And they're like, you should give him a copy. And I hear, yeah, you should give me a copy. And I was like, what? I turn around. He's like right there at a table, like the drinks people. And I was like, I can do that. Um, and I give him one and he's like, did you sign it? And I was like, no, he's like, that's not cool, man. Sign it. And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. To Jim, sure. What the hell? Um, I gave it to him and then we took a photo. He was super nice for, it. I was like, cool. That's our interaction. Um, and then great measures came out like a little bit short after time at the seminar, four months later, the dragon awards come out and I'm, I'm nominated up for the dragon award with Jim butcher in the same category. Like he said, I could be one day. And that really stuck to heart. And I kept writing and showing up at conventions and then Dangerous Ways was up the next year. And I bumped into to Jim at DragonCon and we sat down at a table and it was like really weird. And we were just talking. It was super cool and super nice. And the next year he sends me a, a friend request and we, we just start talking and I'm freaking out because I'm, I'm still fanboy. <laughs> and I'm like, this is really weird. And then it takes him by the end of the year. He's like, I don't know if you've gotten this because you're, you know, you're not really paying attention, but like, I'm here to mentor you. And I was like, what? Okay. Uh, uh sure he's like yeah you know like reach out with questions about the industry and the business and talk and, and learn and i was like yes sir okay and it, it kind of just took off from there and then uh, and end of 2018 i got the invitation to be in the heroic hearts anthology which is an urban fantasy anthology uh about what it means to like be a hero and they're like we'd love for you to write a short story in this uh because your, your name's been coming up a lot you've been earning a really good reputation and people are talking about you positively and there's a lot of like interest in your, your urban fantasy series. And I was like, oh, wow, I have to write a great report short story in his anthology. And that just came out this year. Uh, COVID obviously delayed it a lot uh, for the release. And it's just been staggering. And then he, he was nice enough to read through my series. And he's like, yeah, I like this. And he, he gave a blurb for it, uh, the Grave Report series, which has a blurb, and it, which is another dream come true and things he told me I could do. And then 2019, I got the panel with him. Uh, honestly, a lot of my writing career life has been weirdly following and somehow having happened, all the things he said could happen, uh, which I, I actually, beggar's belief, I actually don't have the words to like explain the, the emotional reaction to that still, because it's weird every time a new thing happens that he said was going to happen or could have happened. That's an amazing story. And I'm glad that he was there that night to help you through that. That's absolutely, I'm not gonna lie. I've clung to those words ridiculously uh, a lot. That's why uh, Tales of Tremaine is dedicated to them. When I was first conceptualizing the series and was talking about it, I'm like, I don't think anyone's going to care about this fantasy storytelling series that's also a love letter to the history of storytelling. Because I was like, I'm going to nerd in this. It's going to be a lot of secret nods, comparative mythology, and where we get structures and beats from, and a lot of famous myths being retold that I don't think people realize are older than their favorite fantasy novels. Like, they come from thousands of years ago, and they've been retold and retold and retold and reskinned and retold over and over down to where, like, the most popular fantasy novels are really just taking from those same beats and it's okay because that's what we do as a, as a not just today but that's the love humanity has had for storytelling we've taken our favorite stories and just like oh i want to do my version of it because right. that's what we do and i'm actually just doing a whole nod to that and the idea of the hero's journey and the hero of a thousand's face it's like this whole thing is a commentary on that but how it also unites us as people and when i first talked about this i didn't think anyone would be interested in it i made a facebook post and one of the first people was jim who came on it and he was like don't worry about that. He's like, do you like the idea? If you do, write the hell out of it. Do the absolute best version you can. The industry will figure out how to market it. I guarantee you it will sell. People will like it. There's going to be a lot on your control, but you have to do the best version of you can. And don't worry about the other stuff. It'll find its home, especially if you write the crap out of it. You just your best job. It's like, all right. And I, and I did. And it wasn't even finished when editors and stuff were falling in love with just the sample. They're like, we'll buy the whole series off the sample. And I was like, Wow. Okay. And he was the one who told me to, to write the project. I didn't think it'd go off. I hadn't even started when I first just talked about that. I had like an opening line and a concept and something that was honestly a different book. And then it spun into this. That's amazing. So for anybody that wants to begin the journey as a writer, um, do you have any advice for them? Uh, yeah, you already have great taste because you already know what you like to read. Trust that. 
and just keep trying to write what you want to love because a lot of that of you not liking your earlier work is because you have good taste. It doesn't mean your work's bad. It's just not where you want it to be because you've read so much other stuff you love. But that means you know where you want to go and where you want to hit. And as long as you have that, you'll eventually get there because the rest is just practice and time. And it's like gym time. If you put in the time consistently, eventually you will make progress and you'll keep making progress. You're going to keep moving the bar, which that sucks. But that's also a good thing because it means you've gotten to where the last bar was. Uh, so keep that whole perspective that this is just honestly, it sucks to say, but it's a time game. The more time you put in, the further you will go. And it's going to take more time to keep going further. But that time goes away anyway. Um, we've, we're all living on borrowed time, right? It's going to pass. If this is what you want to do, start doing it. Don't worry about how good you are because good is also an accumulated skill. You, you'll get good. You will get better. Right. That's great advice. Um, Ronnie, go ahead and tell people how they can get a hold of you. Um, first bindings out now. Go pick it up. Go pick it back. Um, log up as well. Go ahead and tell anybody um, you know, where they can reach out to you. Um, if you're going to any conventions anytime soon within the next year or so i will be at world fantasy con in new orleans uh first week of november november 3rd to the 6th where i think there's a public signing they do there uh please just look it up look up world fantasy convention 2022 so if any first binding fans are around there i will be there uh and they've got a signing thing there i'm gonna try to stop at tubby and coos i need to reach out to them but they're a local bookseller who's been really kind and supportive of me in new orleans and i'd like to sign some copies for them Best places to reach me, honestly, tag me on Twitter. I am very active on Twitter. I genuinely like the interactions I've been fortunate to have there. Uh, Facebook at, you know, slash RRVerdi. I have a, a author page there. I do respond to DMs whenever I can. I have a small fan group that is really tiny in niche and core. Uh, I don't post there a lot, but I will interact with people there. It's, it's just the RRVerdi fan group that people started for me and then foisted on me. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not good at management, but they were like, yeah, this is your fan group. You should manage it. It's like, but uh, okay. I suck at this for sure. All right. Um, I'll just post and talk and I'm going to try to get a discord active. I'm not the biggest discord user in terms of like managing groups. I'm, I'm better about just for private talks on discord, but I'm going to try to get better there. But Twitter hundred percent, I'm super active. Um, and that's probably the best place to contact me and I'll, I'll respond if I can. Perfect. Thank you so much again for getting on with me. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, man. Likewise, it's been great being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Troy podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.